Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. Back again from the boondocks or wherever he was after abandoning us, as he's wont to do. Sam, what do you have to say for yourself? Um, I'm just being gainfully employed in the real world, uh, which is probably some kind of right hemisphere or something or other. But you could also say that I'm neglecting the experience of the pursuit of knowledge for more of a um, concrete apprehension of it, which is left hemisphere-ish. So I don't know. I don't have anything to say for myself. Well, there's something honest about that, at least, I suppose. <laughs> we'll let it slide. Just this once. But at least you are... Or, or the third time. Yeah, just this yeah, once. What are you talking yeah. about? Uh, wishful thinking, I suppose. Um, but gentlemen, what are we drinking, Sam? Well, um, yesterday I got my second Bill Gates chip, chip of freedom, um, and so I am currently drinking some body armor, trying to stay hydrated and pumped with electrolytes. Um, I'm quite repulsed by this Macintosh computer that I'm recording on right now. I uh, can't explain that. Uh, beyond that, I'm doing well. So we're hydrating. I'm curious, oh, how, how, were the, uh, how were the effects? Like, what, what's the, the side effects of the second shot? Um, Actually, it hasn't been as bad as I was expecting it to be. The first one was pretty bad. Um, second one, just general haziness and a bit of pain on like my entire right side. Okay. Um, but yeah, yeah plus that, you bought like okay. like Office three sixty five subscription, Xbox exactly. Subscription. Yeah, uh, have you guys seen the 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 meme that's um, Bill Gates uh, searching for singles in your area, and it's all these women like holding their arms, and it's the little internet. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Did you know that that that, that getting the, the Bill Gates ship mm-hmm. automatically enters you in to be uh, the next person he'll divorce in four years? <laughs> um, so I, I'm just hoping that when our uh, when when we finally transition to a techocracy, um, that the Bill Gates Chip of Freedom will replace the Presidential Medal of Freedom as the highest honor. Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On it, like, like just getting a Pfizer shot for no reason will just be like the the highest honor that anyone can bestow upon you. Um, yeah. Also, uh, on that note, the amount of regret I have over leaving Microsoft right before, like, arguably one of the biggest pieces of news related to Microsoft came out, it uh, it hurts so much. Uh, well, uh, as for myself, um, I have once again availed uh my taste buds i suppose of the superior items that can only be found at trader joe's and if you tell me that it's you know a generic version of whatever the real thing is i will tell you to go to hell but this is the uh jalapeno limeade that trader joe's sells like for a couple weeks every year it's very very good makes a great margarita though i'm just having it virgin and uh it is delicious just the slightest hint of a kick um but it is it is good stuff Jalap- Jalapeno limeade, so ha- jalapenos, like more like mm-hmm. more like limeade with just a hint of jalapeno. Yeah, but why why would you have that when you can have limeade without a hint of jalapeno? Man, why, we are not why, synced on drinks. Why have just a little bit of jalapeno when you could just have tomato soup with jalapeno and vodka, and it's the best drink in the world? Because I don't want to drink something that tastes like someone something that was in, once inside someone's internal organs. Hey, what when are you, you drinking, guys were. Steven? I'm drinking water. <laughs> <laughs> and that should show you this guy's taste right here. All right, all right. I didn't okay. have anything else. So, when you guys were here, did I make you try that habanero vodka that my that my dad made that one time? I it, want this. He, he infused habaneros into vodka, and it was it's possibly the spiciest thing I've ever put in my mouth. That sounds amazing. Like, it really does. Uh, oh, man. That sounds dangerous. I'd be willing to give it a shot. I gave Bloody Mary's oh, a shot. You don't want to give it a shot. You want to give it like a small little taste. <laughs> I'll, bet it, I'll, I'll bet it would be really good in a Bloody Mary. God. That sounds like it's made for a Bloody Mary. Okay, but okay, just, we agree. Brief, brief aside here. All right, so Stephen visited um, a couple weeks ago, and we went on an excellent uh, intellectual retreat with the Thomistic Institute. It was, it was great fun. We talked Jeez. about St. Augustine, hung out with the Dominicans, did daily prayers. It was... Quite a good time, but prior to our, you know, like sort of holy, quasi-monastic, you know, Desert Father, except, you know, in downtown D.C. thing, um, we did our, you know, the required, like, last days of debauchery, right? So, you know, uh, make me 
a good person, but not yet type of thing. Um, and one of the things was, is we made each other drinks because Stephen and I have this sort of ongoing war where he likes gin and tonics. That's one of his favorite drinks. And a Bloody Mary is one of mine. And so we made them for each other, hoping for, you know, some ecumenism uh, or something like that. But it just it it just didn't go well, did it, Stephen? It didn't at all. We we sat watching a show and both like choking down our respective beverages. Yeah. So what did you make for each other? I made him a gin and tonic and he made me a Bloody, Bloody Mary. He he did a phenomenal oh. job, I'm sure. Like, I could tell he put a lot of effort into it, whereas with me, gin and tonic is gin and, and, and tonic and then you throw a lime in and that's about it. But I, I, I honestly do not understand. I wanted to. This was my first Bloody Mary and I was like, you know what? I, I made a lot of jokes and I'm sure I'm actually going to like it. Took one sip, was like, nope, I'm sure I'm not going to like this. I mean, and why and, did you add pepper to it and delicious juice and I, okay? So, so I can say the exact same thing about a gin and tonic, all right? Because if you like gin, have gin in the drink it's supposed to be in, which is a martini. It's great. It it mellows it out. It's perfectly smooth. You have the medicinal. You uh, it it takes the edge off with the uh with the white wine the, the that I name I'm for vermouth. Thank you. Uh, and and plus it's again symmetrical to the Manhattan, which I maintain is like the most beautiful thing in all the drinks. But the other thing is, the only thing that you're really getting with a gin and tonic is the tonic, which is just the bitter, disgusting taste of quinine. It's like, come on, you aren't going to die of malaria. Why are you forcing yourself to drink this? There's zero point. See, I think I do it more for the carbonation. And incidentally, we're 0 for 3 right now because, man, I can't... They're better than Bloody Mary's, I'll give you that. But uh, martinis, just... mm, Nope, nope. So what you're saying is you just like the tonic water. You just just drink tonic See, water. I've Why tried, would you really you you drink tonic water? I've tried that before, and it's not that good. Um, but something with the gym and it, the gin and the lime just it, it just makes it work. I think I actually attribute it to the fact that I drank a lot of pop growing up, and so I really really like carbonated beverages, and so mm-hmm. gin and tonics are carbonated, and therefore it just it clicks for me. Well, like cold. Well. <laughs> Okay. Whatever fine. sludge it is that I'm ingesting that is a Bloody Mary. Now I want to make a carbonated Bloody Mary. Can tomato juice even accommodate that? Well, you could seen... you could carbonate the tomato juice. Like that's how like car- like craft carbonated cocktails. You'll hmm. make the cocktail, shake it, and then recarbonate it at the end because hmm. through a process of making it, it loses the carbonation. That sounds or fascinating. Now I'm imagining just like a Bloody Mary and it, you take it from the can, but it's a little overcarbonated and it just absolutely explodes everywhere. That would be <laughs> amazing. And, you know, I like I would just I wouldn't even try and stop it. I just, you know, pour it all over my body. But uh, speaking of romantic images, the master and his emissary chapter 11 is romanticism and the industrial revolution. Um <laughs> Also, you take it from the can. Are you buying your Bloody Marys in, in like... We're carbonating it now. We're making carbonated Bloody Marys. It's a six-pack. They're all, like, you know, 18-ounce cans, because why not? And <laughs> and it, it just creates a geyser in, in my kitchen. It hits the ceiling. It's 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 gorgeous. It's beautiful. Don't... I, I write poems about it. I, I straight up words worth it as it splatters across the ceiling and hits my smiling, upturned face. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway... Okay. Sam, I believe you have the the, the the first half of the chapter. You know, no one should be bathing in tomato juice unless you've been like sprayed by a skunk or something. Okay, just listen. If no. that's what it took, all Probably right. The origins of a Bloody Mary when somebody was trying to get wasted as they're sitting in a bathtub full of tomato juice, <laughs> and they thought, "Why not?" We is this what happens when we don't do this for a month? I think so. Wow. Okay. Oof. Okay, so romanticism in the Industrial Revolution. So McGillicrest attempts to define romanticism, and he runs into difficulty immediately, basically saying that it's very difficult to define. Um, I'll try to find my place in the book. Uh, he goes to Isaiah Berlin, who's written about this extensively, and basically Berlin defines this as a disposition towards the world, which is concerned with the essential nature of the world, basically looking at not what the world is, but how we engage with it. Um, Miguel Chris then goes into kind of a genealogy of where romanticism came from, and he concludes that there's no such romantic revolution that many have claimed in the past, but rather it's a smooth transition from the Enlightenment. Um, romanticism is a reaction to the left hemisphere focus um, that is rampant during the Enlightenment, and it's an awareness of parts that are beyond our system of apprehension. 
um, an awareness that can only be ascertained through the right hemisphere. Uh, it's also part of romanticism is accepting differences alongside universals. So romanticism doesn't have trouble at all with opposites. Um, and this is evident in Montesquieu, who was okay with basically something being the same and also opposite at the same time. Um, very conceptual. But this this kind of um, comfort with contradiction is what led many to assume that there was a big, huge revolution. However, McGill Chris does not think that's the case. Uh, some of the trigger points for this slow shift to romanticism were, again, uh, the realization that opposites were um, possible and indeed were possible within a closed system and the realization of the insufficiency of reason. Pascal wrote about this by saying that reason shows us that there are infinite things past reason. Um, it also involved the recognition of greatness in the violation of our set precepts. And it looks back at many of the masters of the Renaissance, Michelangelo and Shakespeare, this rediscovery of Renaissance figures and the realization that what made them great was not them ascertaining truth per se, but actually transcending the precepts that we assume to be true. Very, uh, Shakespeare's creativity in the English language and Michelangelo throwing out all rules in his painting that he had taught for so many years. Uh, moving on to the first major section of this chapter, Body and Soul, uh, he, he quotes, um, is it Gothe? Gothe? I want to be sure I pronounce it correctly. So... I actually don't know. Let's. I'd guess goat, but someone goat? check the internet. Okay, I'm gonna make. I'm gonna check it to make sure. Yeah, I'll, I don't I'll, wanna... I'll cut it out so you sound smart. Okay, Gothe. Pronounce Gota. Gota. Yeah, Gota. Gota. Okay. Thank you for that. I should have done that beforehand. You're good. Anyway, so this section uh, quotes Gote, uh significantly, basically talking about where fact and theory coincide. Um. Oh man. Uh, Goethe is talking about how our facts um, and the facts of our experience actually build up our theories versus dilute them. Uh, he basically talks about how trying to distill everything down to a theory and to a universal is like a child who goes behind the back of the mirror trying to figure out what is there. Uh, we can only come to know ourselves indirectly and heightened self-consciousness and over analysis of ourselves actually cuts us off from a large amount of experience. Now, I have a little bit of a tangent here, which is to ask uh, Stephen: uh, Is this related to quantum physics at all? It sounds an awfully lot like uh, what we're discovering in physics, where you can't actually observe a phenomenon um, because when you do, it actually changes the thing that you are observing. Uh, thoughts? As much as I want to flex as hard as I can, I I don't know much about. About quantum me uh, mechanics, they don't show up a whole lot in plasma physics, which has so far been my only real experience. Uh, the few lectures I've listened to, it just it, it sounds like uh, the state changes upon observing, or uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so uh, either something is spin up or spin down. We don't know what it is until we observe it. There, I saw a YouTube uh, video saying that that um, uh, that's that phenomenon is somehow related to a Fourier transform, but then I got very confused because I barely know what a Fourier transform is. So, give me a year or two. There's going to be a quantum computing course uh, that I'm going to take, and uh, okay. I'll get back to you. Okay, sounds good. Um, he then moves on to the relationship between um, with uh, with the body. Uh, philosophers have traditionally viewed the body with antagonism, and he looks at Kant and Descartes for this. Uh, Kant. He has this excellent uh, description, which I'll read straight from it, from uh, the book. Quote, Kant describes marriage as an agreement between two people as to the reciprocal use of each other's sexual organs. Uh, end quote. No, that's his end quote of Kant. Uh, continuing with McGillicris, Kant also, it may be noted, remained single and died probably a virgin. End quote. Uh, which is a bit of a... Owned by word. facts and logic. <laughs> Not by facts and logic, by experience. <laughs> But, uh, of which Kant had none. Kant had no experience, only facts and logic, and it got him nowhere. He also talks about how Descartes was able to distill laughter down to its mechanical parts and how unrealistic and inhuman that sounds. And so philosophers, by holding the body at arm's length and seeing it as merely a mechanical um, object, 
were not able to fully understand how it influenced their own philosophy. He references this book, which I believe to be more contemporary, uh, Philosophy in the Flesh, which talks about how the body is directly connected to the mind. And hence, the experience of philosophizing is actually a bodily experience that involves all of what we have all experienced and our um, physical actions in the theorizing, which is very, very interesting. Nicola uh, Kristen says that the Romantics properly understood this union uh, between body and theory. And he goes on to talk about Wordsworth, how Wordsworth was able to express the physical experiences far more than the Enlightenment poets were able to. And this is because he understood that those were conveying his true message or his true meaning. Um, this appreciation for the embodied nature was uh, also seen in the Enlightenment, but in their appreciation of classical texts. This is pulling all the way back from Greek and Rome. Uh, later on, he moved into how Romanticism interacted with religion and quote uh, and references uh, Eckendorf as saying that Romanticism was the nostalgia of Protestants for the Catholic tradition, which is a great quote. Uh, tradition is an embodiment of the culture. It's not an idea of it necessarily. And Therefore, we can only ascertain this embodiment through the right hemisphere. Romanticism is trying to get at that. Childhood is also more focused on the right hemisphere. And again, romanticism looked more heavily into childhood and the experience of being a child than the Enlightenment did. Uh, romanticism recognized that there's no matter-of-fact reality independent of our attitude towards it. And this is primarily what he circles back to the beginning of the chapter by saying that this is what causes confusion about what romanticism stands for. It stands for the fact that there is no matter of fact um, reality, that it's all what we ascertain and that observing it changes it. This also explains why uh, projects originating from rationality and from the right hem the left hemisphere uh, betray their ideals. Uh, he looks at the French Revolution as a primary example of this. There's no consideration for the manner in which a thing is done but only in the what, creating liberty, fraternity, um, etc. And that's what enables the French Revolution to say the ends justify the means and to create something that is entirely antithetical to its original ideals. It wasn't so concerned with the ideals or the means, but rather with just doing this thing um, of creating liberty whatever that means, is abstracted from the situation. Uh, uh, Goethe again says, or again looks into this and breaks it down very systematically. Uh, to look is to make an observation. Make an observation is to reflect, and to reflect is to build associations, which again changes the way that we look at it. It's a cycle um, that is entirely, um, it's a, it's a process-driven cycle uh, that, that cannot necessarily be ascertained completely by the left hemisphere. McGillicrest then moves on to depth. And his big his his main example here is the painter uh, Claude Lorraine and his landscape art. Uh, this art is engaged completely with the world. Uh, and it demonstrates a depth in our relation to the world, both in distance and time, in a way that very few painters before him had done. And I and I can attest to this. I've seen some of his works and they are absolutely stunning. Um, in the, in the depth that he portrays on the canvas. Uh, light is seen as transitional, not illuminating. While in Enlightenment artworks, light was generally seen to be illuminating the truth. In, uh, in Romantic artwork, it's primarily seen as transitional, either dusk moving into night or dawn moving into daylight. Uh, light is used to show time and space and movement. Uh, and this movement allows one to better connect with reality. Some of... Uh, uh, Lorraine's more um, light-based studies have been seen as proto-abstract art, but Miguel Chris pushes back against this assertion. Uh, he says that light is anything but abstract. It's concrete. It's and it means something. Um, it means it, it again means something only to the right hemisphere. He also looks at space uh, and and how space is actually a metaphor for time. So this interaction between the distance between things and the temporal relationship to them. And again, looks back at some poetry that Wordsworth has written. Finally, he moves on to the concept of the sublime. Uh, the sublime is not just something that somebody ascertains, but it actually, by viewing it, expands and extends the viewer. It changes them in some way. Uh, and this way is by connecting with something else. So it's in the betweenness between the viewer and the sublime thing uh, that that person is grown. Obviously, a very... Um, 
transformational and movement-based experience. And this depth and understanding of relationships between things inevitably pushes one towards looking at their end, at death, depth, or sorry, looking towards their end, looking towards death. And this leads directly into his last uh, section of melancholy and longing. Uh, there's a fixation in the, in, in the Romantics, uh, like in the Renaissance, on the past as well as the individual or unique, as opposed to the general. You're looking back at where you have come from, and you're longing for that thing. He um, repeats his conversation that he had earlier in the book on the difference between wanting and longing, where wanting is a left hemisphere drive for something concrete, while longing is basically a pull that is experienced in the right hemisphere for something not necessarily known. it's a fixation on things that can only be partially under um, discerned. And the right hemisphere is the only part of the brain that's really capable of understanding that there can be something that isn't fully discerned. Um, You're attempting to complete this thing um, and actually playing a part in the completion of it. Uh, The sublime is more impactful when it is only partially visible. All right, Brevin. Uh, yes, and this in this problem of visibility, he leads into uh, what he calls the problem of clarity and explicitness. And as you might guess, um, being over clear and over explicit is the realm of the left hemisphere and its conscious and explicit process and how it re- represents the world. And he goes into talking about vision and and when dealing with art and the left hemisphere in particular, there's this problem with vision, because when we see things, it reduces them to a 2D plane. But the world, in reality, an art like sculpture, is 3D. It has depth to it. But the eye tends to collapse things, unless you're careful. It 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 flattens things out, or it can at the very least. Um, So romanticism is in part about revivifying the vision, about seeing life in sculpture and art, bringing the depth back, interacting with it like it's alive, seeing unbroken continuity between the art and the observer. Um, he says on a page 372, quoting, um, uh, quoting Blake, uh, a poem, quote, This life's dim windows of the soul distorts the heavens from pole to pole and leads you to believe a lie when you see with, not through the eye, end quote. Mm-hmm. And that we need to see through the eye rather than merely with it not a representation of the world that's flat but the world itself which is deep um and we tend to jump right to this representation when we look at a piece of art and we immediately jump to the meaning of something pulling out the concept behind it instead of just maintaining uh or sorry instead of just remaining in its presence and words can do this too make you know our rich experience of life that we all uh, have but then collapse it down to you know, a set of well-used descriptors takes all of the magic, all of the energy, all of the reality out of it, you know, and it becomes, you know, I got out of bed this morning, I went to work, I ate food, and I went to bed. Um, hopefully with some more eating food in there, because that's not a lot of food if you're only eating one. But that's where poetry comes in, to make the familiar new, not because it's necessarily new, but because it's worn down by this left hemisphere, by this language, which is the domain of the left hemisphere, at least um, the everyday language that we use. And, and poetry helps um, unblunt language to reveal the full depth of the world. And he has more kind words for uh, Wordsworth here and his uh, connection to the betweenness of things, the, the memory, the nostalgia that Sam talked about. Um, and the conclusion is sort of, with vision at least, is that there's something like trying too hard to remember a word. You need to relax and then it comes to you. And that's what seeing the full the, the full world is like. You can't see it if you focus too hard. You need to relax and then it is almost revealed to you unbidden, which is in, in part why it's it's hard to maintain it. You can't focus on it and, and control it like you can with left hemispheric operations. Um, he then spends several pages running through various other poets, Tennyson, Hopkins, Blake, Shelley, really working his, uh, you know, English degree to the absolute max um, here. Um, but then he goes into the the final part of the chapter um, and talking about what he calls the second reformation, uh, which is scientific materialism, sort of the, the, this bastard child of German idealism and the enlightenment. Um, also, he, call, he, he also calls it positivism uh, synonymously in that it's concerned with pure objective knowledge, scientific knowledge. And he points out that, interestingly, and this comes from the German idealism from the young Hegelians, that authenticity is here too. It's very important, but it's just, it, it's a different kind of authenticity than we 
uh, might instinctively think of. Sort of like the Reformation attempted to rebuild authenticity by rescuing the word, the pure word from the body that was dirty. The second Reformation rescues matter from the word now. There are these ideas that get in between us and the real reality that we live in that is simply matter, that is can be described by science. And here, this fits in with our discussion a month ago or so with Charles Taylor. And you can sort of see just as this chapter goes on that the roof is closing on the imminent frame. We're being contained in this material world and everything else is being block blocked out. And there's this language of authenticity. Authenticity is supposedly here, but it's a reduced kind of authenticity. It's limited. It's, it's being boxed in. And the new divinity that we're to worship is science now. Rationalism alone, the left hemisphere reflecting in on itself and totally uh, sure of its own abilities. Uh, and it, it sweeps away the past, he, he says, uh, quote, In sweeping away the past, it seems that the concept of hubris, which the Greeks had understood as lying at the heart of all tragedy was lost, end quote. Um, and so this avoidance of context that science has, that this scientific materialism has, means that it's entirely blind to one, its own origins and its context, and also its limitations. There's these myths of the unity of science. There's assumptions about the progress of technology that it happens slowly, gradually, and objectively, rather than, you know, various people and innovators who operate much less under the scientific method and more under artisanship or or skill or craft that is distinct from this um, ideal scientific myth about how the world progresses. And then, of course, the final myth, the idea that science is above morality, that it's purely objective in both a material and moral sense. And so here is the move that he's been working towards, which I'm sure Stephen will rant about later in very few pages. Uh, he deals with the material world that the left hemisphere creates through the industrial revolution and what he says where the left hemisphere outflanks and beats the right hemisphere um because what the industrial revolution ends up doing is it creates a real physical world in the shape of the internal left hemisphere machines you know forms that don't appear in their perfect form in nature so perfect circles cubes cylinders and straight lines all elements of urban environments that are man-made and are totally distinct from nature. And so then when the right hemisphere looks out and attempts to process the world in relationship to the left hemisphere and its abstract concepts, when it looks, it only sees the abstract concepts that have been externalized. It's trapped now in an infinite cycle of left hemispheric thinking. And this is how he thinks the left hemisphere gets its advantage in the idea realm, um, which is the subject of the next chapter, chapter 12, uh, the modern and postmodern worlds, which we will get to in due course. On, on the whole, I did actually think this was a, a solid chapter dot 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 for romanticism uh, i i do find it incredibly frustrating he he has a little line where he says like this was the moment this like the industrial revolution is it, like the left the left's uh the left hemisphere's most insidious move it's it's most powerful move in all of history and he devotes two pages to it like that that absolutely blows my mind this is a guy that went on for 40 50 pages on phenomenology and he can't afford to give us at least a few more pages unpacking his argument on why the Industrial Revolution was so bad? Like, come on, man. <laughs> fair. Fair fair as far as it goes. But I do think that the, um, the, the best defense that I can muster would be similar to what we talked about last time and the printing press, right? That why doesn't he bring in changes to the material world into the analysis of the mind more? Um, but he seems very selective about that. Sometimes he, he, he'll talk about it. Sometimes he won't. He, he's much more a history of ideas guy. It, it, it seems to me. And so the next chapter I think is going to be how these ideas are continually reified. Um, but yes, you're right. I would have liked some ranting about urbanism or something. That would have been a lot of fun. So even with the history of ideas thing, I'm sympathetic with that. I think for the most part, I agree with you, but he is shifting over from this is how ideas have shaped us to this is how one particular brain structure has has formed i uh, not ourselves not our society but like our very way of being um has yeah sorry uh having trouble articulating it, the idea like that the assembly line is a particularly left right or a, a left hemisphere notion this was the left usurping the right i'm very sympathetic with that argument um for the most part i agree it it actually somewhat reminds me of the Benedict option, uh, reading the book, um, where the entire time I was rooting for Dreher. 
I, I actually, for the most part, agreed with his idea, agree with a lot of his premises, but he just never really argued for it. Um, he never laid out a case for why we should actually be concerned about our current society. And so it just seems that McGillicrist, up so far, he's done solid scholarship. He's done really clear, cogent writing. It just seems that this is this, along with the Enlightenment chapter, are just two really sore thumbs. That's like, man, what what happened here? But that said, I actually did like the section on romant uh, on romanticism. He did an excellent job there, arguing, unpacking a lot of these poets, and saying this is actually really indicative of right hemisphere thinking. And we also see we get the left hemisphere thrown in because the right hemisphere is inclusive. So, like, I'm not going to go so far as I did last uh, last week, where I was like, nope, the Enlightenment chapter was awful. Um, I'm not sure if I said awful, but I was not a fan. This one, it was a, it was definitely a more mixed bag. Yeah, I definitely had a huge flashback to my romanticism. I guess it wasn't a romanticism class, but whatever, my English history or uh, history of English literature classes and uh, just running through all the poets again. And he really did or sort of with a lot of things that this that this book has provided is just sort of context before and after that make it relevant. Um, and, and, and also like context of the world proper not just the the world of literature so like you know in english class wordsworth is just is sort of like the stodgy guy who started off cool and hip but then he got weird or sorry but then he got boring rather towards the end of his life but in in context of this you can see more what his moves were and what he's trying to build and what the romantic project is i guess just in 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 better context than i got in um in in undergrad and and particularly on the ideas of not contradiction per se but just rather that that the world is is bigger than the uh, constructs of the enlightenment that's creating these paradoxes and these contradictions where, where they don't necessarily exist and if you relax your view things can fit together um where the where a narrow enlightenment view would insist that they contradict. Yeah, I mean, it seems like at a certain point he has to stop his analysis. And so he's focusing primarily on where the right hemisphere shines through. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, there's been so much written on the Industrial Revolution that I, I think that he may have just shortchanged that for that for that point alone. Which it was refreshing kind of seeing this is this is an era where it actually worked, where the right hemisphere was dominant, it was including the left hemisphere, everything was kind of going on its merry way and things were things were on the whole pretty good. Um so yeah, he I and I would agree with you, enough has been written on the Industrial Revolution that I suppose we can come some slack. Um yeah. He maybe it is one of the those like disappointing moments of of um high school. Or when you look back on high school and realize, like, man, all these, like, cool books and all these cool poets and everything that, like, really had a life of their own and how high school just more often than not kind of kills them. And now, granted, you're also, like, I myself was not a, uh, parti- like, particularly influenced by by poetry or whatever. I, you know, thought it was lame or what have you. Um, you know, high schoolers are high schoolers. But I do have to wonder, like, this stuff is so beautiful it really is a pity that we can't inculcate that sort of desire in students. Well, you can't because, I mean, at least for me, when I, whenever I would read poetry and whenever I still read poetry, I'm like, okay, what's the point of this? <clears throat> what's the, what's the uh, concrete point? And my, my fiance hates it when she sends me some kind of poetry that she read. And I'm like, I don't get it. I don't understand what he's saying. And she's like, no, you need to see the overall thing. And now I, and now I guess McGillicrist really hammered home how wrong I am in how I read it. Um, which I think Brevin can relate to, or can uh, will agree with that I'm very very wrong in that. I mean, you were already wrong because you were disagreeing with your fiance, but you're further wrong yes. in that you don't understand poetry and you're a philistine. Um, so I will say, Sam, I very much appreciated your uh, summary of the first part, and I think the um, I don't know. I, I, I reading the chapter, I, I think I, I just sort of got lost. But one thing that stood out just o- over the course of Sam doing his summary was. Um, the trolley problem, which which we all uh, know know and, and love as the classic mm. example of of moral quandary. Maybe this has been obvious to everyone, or, or but for some reason I just had the flash of of inspiration. Is that consequentialism? And you know, to to backdrop, you know, there's the trite point. You know, it's consequentialism. You push the fat man, or whatever, or or pull the lever. Deontology. You can't commit murder. Blah blah blah. So like, you know, those are the two standard, and then. You know, people say, ah, but virtue ethics beats both of them. Sure, but like, mm-hmm. I always forget what virtue ethics is, and it's complicated. But what the summary... You're, Catholic. You're not allowed to forget. McIntyre? 
Yes, no, no. You just I, hung I, out with a bunch of Thomas. I'm aware what like what what virtue is, but as a like the formal construct of it, I would say I I, I haven't studied formally. Um, do the right thing in the situation where it is right. Yes. So be but, a good person. But here is the good. the 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 not summary of that. But here's the version that doesn't go that far, which is simply to say that consequentialism and deontology are the same thing because they're both concerned with universals in the abstract. And and that's the error. And as McIntyre says, it's not about the what, but about the how. And they're both concerned with the what of, of this rule, and they're just following different rules. And for some reason, that finally hit home with this chapter, what that yeah what that means. And also, I mean, as I'm I'm fairly certain, if I recall the the, the mythology of the trolley problem, it, it's an example of a bad moral question. Like this isn't like a this is a bad way to think about anything because totally yes. abstract situation with no connections, no context, no real people. It's it's a perfect left hemisphere thing to create this moral quandary where, mm-hmm. you know, it will be evident to the real living person what to do. What yeah. didn't Philip Foot uh, create it as like a criticism of consequentialism? And it, like, really? yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a yeah bad philosophical question. Yeah. I mean. I mean, when you read Kant and Mill right next to each other, they feel both equally stifling and unrealistic, and both indeed were products of the Enlightenment in in the finest sense. So, yeah. Although, again, Kant is considered one of the best philosophers to have lived in the last thousand years. And yes, while it was hilarious, McGillicrest just being like, "Yeah, it's stupid virgin," <laughs> that was incredible. <laughs> But at the same time, like, okay, dude, you need to you need to address them a little bit more because like is calling, calling him a virgin and then moving on. Although, man, style points. Just style points. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's one of the only times he's mentioned Kant in this entire book, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Though to be fair, he he didn't actually like it it didn't seem that he took issue with Kant's philosophy. I think he just more didn't care about Kant's philosophy other than it's a left hemisphere mode of being and I think that should be readily obvious to anyone who reads Kant's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean like if you want to, you know, try and that what you will, you must will for all of mankind, like start by willing yourself a girlfriend, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, but no, something, something isn't Kant like a bit of a romantic or at least sometimes lumped in there with his work on the sublime. I don't remember. I've read like probably 10 pages back in I don't, undergrad. I don't know. No, the sublime, he's just like, it is what is always, I mean, he, he universalizes that and ascertains it to exactly what's going on. Like, it's not, it's like giving you special knowledge versus extending you. So, I mean, even he like misses, misses the point, I would say. The other uh, topic that I had here briefly is just uh, to is to uh, push back on Nick while he's not here to respond to me in nice. from from the last chapter, which is talking about you know his, his sort of argument that McGillchrist isn't doing science. Fair enough, as far as it goes, Nick is right in that he's not doing science and he, and he's not trying to. It's not necessarily that he's doing some wacky right hemisphere thing either. It's it's more that, you know, he's just describing knowledge in a way that science with its limited constrained sense doesn't recognize this as legitimate knowledge building. The point that pushes back on Nick uh, on is the idea of what science is supposed to look like versus what it actually look looks like. And the sort of arrogant assumptions at the core of a lot of science, both then and that that also bleeds now and will sort of like instantly come out whenever there's some kind of argument in the public sphere about scientists and, and, and such, which is just the myths of the unity of science, that all these fields are working sort of more or less in concert, doing the same thing. They're all doing their slow incremental thing. There's no individual personalities at all. It's not about I studied under X who has this theory. Well, you even get that uh, with physics. So I had a, a coworker who had a PhD in physics. Um, this was back when I was on the data science team. And he was saying like, no, the, you definitely get camps within physics, uh, uh, within like physics circles. Um, and like, apparently there are a few theories out there that will probably die out the moment one or two prominent physicists just die. Um, like the old guard will be gone and new theories will come in because like everyone kind of knows that they just don't quite work. But the political pressure is just too high. Um, in the social capital you'd lose for publishing a paper saying XYZ theorem is not, or theory is not correct, you'll you'll just lose too much. And so just kind of wait until the old guard dies. That is shocking and also probably true. Um, 
but it really does call into question when people say like science is always objective or believe in science and yeah. that kind of thing. And you're yeah. like, okay, well, if this is what science is, like it's a useful tool, but it's also a political game. So, scientists are humans too, for sure. Now, I, I think I would also urge to say, so uh, there, there's a saying, this is more more around math rather than science, but um, all, model, all models are wrong, some are useful. Um, and, and I actually really like that approach to both math and science and that like, look, I mean, we like, we're trying to represent reality as as best as possible, but kind of have some humility in re- in, in mm. saying we're not going to. I mean, in physics all the time, they say, we know this model is wrong. We just can't compute anything better. Um, so why, like, and it doesn't matter. Like, who cares if you're, you know, half a millimeter off if you're, if all you're trying to do is land on the moon or what have you. Um, yeah, I mean, that sounds like... Bad example, like- but... Well, that sounds like the right hemisphere and left hemisphere working in perfect concert is, you know, is ascertaining, yes, this is not a complete view of the world, but it is useful and it will get us to our goal. Mm-hmm. So therefore, go ahead and do these calculations and rationalize with that within, you know, and, and, and you know, left hemisphere run free and do your thing and achieve something great. We just know on our right side that the means that we're using are incomplete. And yeah. even that our goal that we're accomplishing is not the complete end-all, be-all of existence. I mean, if you view creating the physics problem and getting it correct as the end-all of existence and getting it correct would give you perfect information, well, then you're just deluded and you're not, you're not living a human life. You're not, but if you're aware of the fact that this is just trying to ascertain something you're working on a particular it's very useful to use this calculation yeah absolutely right yeah and i mean obviously you also get scientists who become full of themselves and think that they have solved all the problems and they have achieved perfect knowledge hi dawkins um <laughs> i was about to say <laughs> yeah I, I i mean all this talk of science just reminds me that like there's a reason that we haven't been back to the moon you know mid-century and it's because we were never there right well no well no it's it's because mid-century we had a catholic president and and catholicism is basically magic and also we had hippies who also believe in magic and ever since then it's been science and science can't get you to the moon only magic can but now that we have a catholic president again and all the witches are back on instagram maybe we have a chance of finally getting back to the moon who knows um we got elon we got dogecoin is magic guys but speaking of a catholic president steven I do believe you have an article that touches on this subject at least a little bit. I do. Uh, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get all political up in here. So this week's article is from the same blog as the last podcast, uh, and in fact was the initial suggestion that Nick gave. So thanks, Nick. Um, this was written last fall, and the topic was appropriately democracy and stasis. Uh, stasis, apparently pronounced stasis, but I'm not going to do that, is a Greek concept uh, coming from the root sto, which means to stand. Uh, though stasis means standing still, back then it referred to standing with. The Latin factio might make things clearer, or seditio, as Cicero translated it, that is, parties. Uh, stasis, standing together, leads to factions, leading to factionalism, and then finally leading to civil strife or even revolution. If you look at Greek and Roman democracies, and there were many back then, um, this eerie pattern emerges with regularity. Lines are drawn in the sand, often between wealthy elite and numerous citizenry. The elite would argue for traditional government, even as they oftentimes would abuse or downright break the laws that they were alleging to defend. The citizenry would argue for a larger role and greater rights within the community. Of course, lines could blur, the rich, you know, some rich people taking the side of the people, or the citizens favoring one or another politician. After all, these guys did need to be voted in up to a certain point. The article acknowledges that these sort of power negotiations are nothing new. However, where things would go wrong would be when factions would get into an arms race of escalation, both eroding, quote, norms, traditions, and a simple and simple restraint that makes self-government possible, end quote, in order to triumph over their political foes. This escalation has a positive feedback cycle. One party A or one party A's outrage is used as justification for party B's outrage, which is then used as justification for A's further outrage, and so on and so forth. Sadly, this almost inevitably leads to political strife, resulting in either a domestic or foreign tyrant. Either one party fully destroys the other, or they've both weakened themselves to the point where where taking the city state would be easy. We're very quick to think that democracy is a given, but the author points out that modern democracies are extremely young. The U.S. is by far the oldest at 232 years. 
Germany is roughly 65, and France is just 62. There are only 76 democracies in, this, in the world out of 167, nearly a world record. Simply put, democracy is not the norm. Thankfully, though, failure is optional. Uh, Athens pulled out of the feedback cycle in 403 BC, ending an oligarchy that had risen at the end of the Peloponnesian War. Interestingly enough, they did so by declaring amnesty for nearly everyone. Only the worst of the oligarchs, the so-called uh, 30 tyrants, faced consequences, and collaborators were integrated into a collective myth that they had truly wished for Athenian democracy all along. The point he hammers home here is that this was done through, quote, compromise and constructive, inclusive redefinition of the polity, end quote. He points to troubling signs in the U.S., but of some indicators of hope. Though Trump was very quick to use political rancor in order to, in order to push policy, Biden has at least paid lip service to unity. Note that, quote, elections don't merely change politics, they can change the culture, end quote. And the idea of, uh, of Biden's repetitive emphasis on including people who likely didn't vote for him, compromise, rejection of political violence, even from causes he supports, and so on, is a very attractive one. Personally, I don't agree with some of Biden's policies. Being center-right myself, I voted third party this time around. But reading this article certainly made me hopeful. The author stresses that this wasn't a turning point election, one last gasp before democracy, democracy shatters. But that said, it is important to nip stasis in the bud. And I remain hopeful that Biden's rhetoric and even himself will indeed preserve our democracy. So really solid article. On the whole, that blog is just so good. So I uh, yeah, would recommend. It is quite a good blog. And I will say, though, like you, you mentioned that you you voted third party. Um, but see, here's the thing. Tradition is the democracy of the dead. Um, so as a traditionalist, I, I voted for two dead people instead. Um, well, at, at least one of them is dead. One of them doesn't have a soul. So it, 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 it sort of balances out. Who doesn't have a soul? Uh, I'll tell you later. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think the thing that I found most fascinating about this article is the is the concept of revival or the reversal of a of a downward trend is something that's always been fascinating to me, and I I, I sort of like almost can't get wrap my head around the concept of it. And so he talks about reform in in Rome and how it they built better institutions. That the, the quotes you know, that he says more than once is, you know, compromise and constructive, inclusive redefinition of the polity. That's what gets the system, gives it energy again, gives it life. There is sort of almost like a contingent historical question, though, where there is a logical endpoint to redefining the polity, the polity inclusively, more or less. I mean, in our modern system, you could make some arguments about, I don't know, more universal voting and various policies that could get more more people to vote, right? But at at some point, th there is an end to how inclusive you can make the polity because you will include all of the polity and modern democracies are pretty close, yet the problems continue. And it's not clear that you can solve factionalism by increasing inclusivity because we have very inclusive democracies all over the world that still yet have factions regardless. So it seems to me, what is the next step once you can't go anymore compromising and inclusively uh sorry uh, can you define inclusive here do you mean like policies that will please both republicans and democrats for for instance it, it has it just gotten to the point where that's just not possible or are you using inclusivity in a different way well so so his argument from my understanding is is making an argument for the revival of u.s democracy we're in this downward spiral in Rome, they also had a, a downward spiral. The way that they fixed it when they made it better is by including more of the polity into the democratic process, making better institutions. But it, it's not clear that you can follow that that same path in the U.S. if you kind of already have the be a better version of the ones that the Romans had then. I forget what Rome did, but that wasn't the Athenian solution. So the, the big one there, the inclusiveness meant we're not going to... We're gonna we're gonna stop the cycle of violence. We're gonna stop the cycle of um, escalation. We're only going to punish the worst of the people, and then everyone else. You're included. You're part. You're you're part of the city, and kind of we're all gonna we're all gonna start working together towards our goal. Wasn't necessarily a I. Uh, some of you didn't have voting rights, and now we're giving you voting rights. It was more we're reunifying, more uh, kind of under under a single banner. We're Athenians, we're not Republicans or Democrats, whatever their parties were. Mm -hmm. That that was the impression I got. I forget what the Roman one was. It was though, so I I could be mistaken on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what I thought of when I was reading this was revenue. And correct me if I'm thinking of the right number, but it would be federal the Federalists. I think 51, where Madison talks about um, factionalism. And basically his solution to factionalism is not let's just become more 
more inclusive because he makes the observation that there will always be factions. When you give people liberty, they will form into factions. And so the solution is not less liberty, but it's checks and balances and it's systems and it's structures and it's being more representational of the people versus more democratic, which is where I think I'd break with this author pretty significantly when he says that our solution is to remember democracy and to defer to the values of democracy. I think we need to more defer to the values of a republic and look at what is what is best for the people versus what the people think is best for themselves. It's that kind of that low level paternalism that runs through any um, system that claims to be representational. Uh, mm-hmm. If you if you take away if you if you're one step removed from power and you're being representative power versus you are actually you actually have power, um, then you can you you can theoretically restrict the the worst motivations of those people. But I wouldn't say that Biden is necessarily this great unifier. He's a great unifier of a certain persuasion in that he's at least you he I mean. And I think that the reason that he is preferable is because he's at least miming through the language of unity and and the language of a shared project, which is necessary, but brushing over the fact that real differences do, should, and will continue to exist. Mm-hmm. And I would say not necessarily, may, may not necessarily be willing to do actually the real work necessary to not eliminate those differences, which is what the author seems to be wanting to do but to compromise on them. I mean, then he does talk about compromise. Being I think good, compromise so. is the idea. It, it, it's yeah. the, the cliche reaching across the aisle, I think is kind of what he's saying. We, we need more of that. Not saying that yeah. either side needs to give up their identity, but look, can we at least talk about this instead of just shouting bile at each other? Exactly. I, and I do think Sam gets at something um, quite good though. And I think maybe to, to make Sam argument a stronger version of it. It needs help. Well, no, no, no. I, I, I liked it a lot. Like with the idea of his discussion of democracy, it sort of says that like, yes, there will be factions that arise, but it doesn't Im- embrace that as a reality. It's like, this is too bad that this happens as opposed. And like the ideal would be, it seems Im- implicitly in his discussion, like a general will of the people. Like if, if only everyone were united, like if only we could get everyone to agree on the same thing, then that would be the ideal form. Or, or you know, to to um, be slightly unfair, if only we could get, you know, 67% of people, then we could, you know, just sort of push things through and ignore the other 33, you know, pure, demo- you know, pure democracy as, as tyranny, right? I do think that there's, the question that I mean, he has to answer as the writer of the piece, and as a and as a historian, or or at least someone who who dabbles in 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 history, he has a PhD in in history, I think. Fair, but it's also not clear what the what the full historical context is this for the U.S. in particular. Let's say so. I mean, you know, you can talk about divided media nowadays, but back in the you know late 1800s or whatever each party had their own newspapers that would just print whatever their party purely wanted and that's you know less than what we have today which you know could be better could be worse then then who knows but that's the kind of argument that we'd have to see you know if we wanted to take his um uh his 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 case fully seriously i i would say yeah i mean but it's also worth and and Revan, we've talked about that argument for a while and i really like it when people talk about media polarization as i always bring that up um because you gave me that little argument but one caveat there is that at the peak of um partisan newspapers we had a civil war and ever since then it's kind of been downhill um at least uh, it's been downhill in terms of partisan newspapers and more towards a unifying source of news until the last 15 years or so so i mean there Fair is enough. that <laughs> <laughs> Touché. yeah yeah i mean uh, i guess i guess my my the one the one additional point i'd make onto my argument is that compromise does not necessarily need to mean unity i you can comp- yes and i i so i i i think there is there um it i don't think he's trying to say get rid of all factions. I think he's trying to say factions can easily lead to a feedback cycle of ever, mm-hmm. ever escalating dirty political moves, which I think we do see in our current system. Um, Democrats start using Supreme court justices to push through a bunch of stuff. Republicans say, Oh, okay, we'll do that. Shoehorn in a bunch of Supreme court justices and start doing the same thing. Who knows what the next outrage will be, but Republicans are now using the, uh, the outrage of the Democrats to justify that move. And, 
the, the cycle will go on. So um, I, I think the main thing is like viewing the other side as human, as like, no, yes, they they've done some stuff, but like we need to be the bigger man and also just start talking with them and start, stop this, this feedback cycle of escalation. And that's what I think that's why he was at least somewhat optimistic about Biden's talk of mm-hmm. reaching across the aisle of including people in his um, uh, policymaking, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. is because that's a sign of not only compromise, but also simply talking, uh, which I think at this point yeah. talking without saying that all conservatives, you know, want to, kill black people and all all democrats want to open gulags um yeah yeah and in that analysis i think he's correct so i mean what we really need is um an an overarching uh meta narrative of you know some other that we can all unite to fight against because that's the only thing that um or i'm like quasi convinced slash i don't know how much of it's a meme and real life but uh you know something a, a society needs a purpose in order to continue to persist and it's a question of whether of how long democracy can sustain its reason to exist under its own weight without something external for it to oppose or fight for or aim for and in the cold war you had that easily in the i was about to say don't you miss the soviets (laughs) don't you miss the soviets yeah um and you know in the in, in this century maybe it'll be china but we've had you know 20 well i guess 30 years now of trying to function without a meta narrative and it's hasn't been hasn't been great uh in in many respects um i mean the war on terror was a half measure but that kind of petered out um, for a second yeah i had it for a second there Um, long days where nuclear annihilation was just a moment away and we all had to unite together man we were so alive so close to that walker percy had a few things to say about feeling alive because of that Mm -hmm. well when one feels very alive uh one lives and when one lives one encounters things when one encounters things one will encounter good things but one will also encounter bad things and bad things make one want to rant sam have you a rant for yeah. us this evening yeah well i've got a rant that's actually kind of dovetailed to our conversation on uh unity in this country uh over the last couple of weeks i saw two competing views regarding um the cdc's announcement that we um don't need to wear masks anymore if we're fully vaccinated uh big news but I saw two uh, two views on Twitter, Instagram, social media. Uh, one was in this phenomenal tweet saying that um, that the person feels like they need to remain masked just so people don't think they're a Republican, uh, even when they don't need to, to wear the mask. So they're going to keep wearing it indefinitely as a signal. Uh, the other one was from a um, extraordinarily Trumpy acquaintance of mine. Uh, he posted uh, upon receiving this news that he didn't need to wear a mask upon getting vaccinated. Oh, great. Now people will think I got the vaccine, which is just brilliant in its <laughs> <laughs> composition. Oh <my> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my word. I, I did that not is... see that coming. That was so good. Oh, my God. That's amazing. <sighs> I probably just woke up my wife. No, <laughs> That's remarkable. So, so this just the layers to that are exceptional. God, there, oh, man, there is there's. You could write a novel about that. That's amazing. What an outstanding! Oh. Wow! Wow! Yeah. All right. Seriously. Now, now, now. To be serious, though, I just spent last week in South Carolina, where there was not a mask in sight. There were signs saying you had to wear a mask, but no one was wearing them, and it was a little, a little strange. Kind of fun. You, you, you felt. I mean, Stephen, like you were talking about the the possibility of nuclear annihilation. You felt, felt kind of freeing to walk into a bar with two hundred people, um, all rubbed up against each other not in a weird way or just small space and uh nobody wearing a mask and it's like well this could be this could be my last night so let's make it a good one listen <laughs> would they call it a super spreader event if it wasn't fun that's a good point it, uh, was, it was super it was definitely super yep um all right so for my rant also on the short side uh i'd recently decided that my computer is running out of space and unlike my my brother who has like man he's I want to say he has like four, like forty terabytes of space on his of stuff that he's added to his computer, and like uses a lot of it. It's insane. I, I don't know how he does it, but all I, memes. I, find, I yeah, it's it's all memes. It's all it's all of the memes actually. Every single one. Uh, no, but but I decided to, to to finally upgrade um the old hard drive space and and add uh I'm I'm at like one and a half now, uh, and I'm gonna add two. Um, and I, I and I ordered it, and it was over you know. $35 for this new hard drive. 
and I got overnight shipping and it, and I ordered it, you know, at like, you know, 7 PM and it shows up at my door at like 7:30 in the morning. And it was amazing. I was like, Oh my God, that is so cool. And then I realized when I opened it that I, I didn't have the the screws that I need. I, I I had the mounting block, but I didn't have the the, the screws in one of the cords. So I I ordered that too. And uh, and but it wasn't overnight because it wasn't over thirty five dollars. It, it was just like ten dollars. And I and, and I was like angry. Like, oh come on! I should get this overnight. What the hell? Like I have to. Ansley, is there anything? Or wife's name? Is there anything that we have to get from Amazon so I can get this overnight? Because I don't I I I don't want to wait for like you know a day and a half. And I was like. My God, what have I become that I like need overnight shipping now? When do you remember when two day shipping was like this impossible thing? And like, oh, how are they going to do that? There's absolutely no way. And now we are just being absolutely like pampered, degraded, everything, zero capacity for waiting, zero capacity for self-restraint. Uh, and you know, we talked about the techno wars earlier. We've talked about the techno wars in the past, but Amazon's on overnight shipping now, guys. I I don't know if what Microsoft is going to do to top that, but they better get on their game quick. Apparently, okay, overnight shipping. Have you guys done same day shipping yet? Yeah, that too. Once or twice. Yeah, yeah. it was magical. They're, they're rolling that out. Well, New York City is like almost all same day shipping. What city? Uh, same day shipping and uh... <laughs> not at the end, but I'll I'll It'll, put in yeah. a beep anyway. Yeah. No, and, and they're they're testing grounds for rural area. Uh, same day shipping is in my case, that we just like we don't know a life where it's like oh I can't get that today. What's yeah? yeah it's it's weird. Like it, it, you can get it quicker by ordering on Amazon than going out to the store and buying it. My God, that is remarkable. Lord have mercy on us. Indeed. Well, Steven, I too have mean? a rant. Um, <laughs> uh, mine is actually on the the, uh, the happier side. So uh, ring um which I'm got. I'm glad we get to get have stuck done in that it 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 it, it inculcates longing. It, it makes you long for something you don't know necessarily what, but you long, um, which I think is a is a wonderful thing. And he does it brilliantly. But um, I saw a movie. This was this was probably a few months ago um, uh, with my friend Tim. I uh, called uh, Your Name, and it is um, it's a romantic comedy, which uh, romantic semi comedy tragedy. Eh probably com- uh, comedy anyway um which typically is not my uh not my uh particular genre of uh of choice but it did a similar a similar job where um in essence the characters end up longing for something but they have forgotten the object of their longing and uh it, it captures this idea so very powerfully is very patient with the pacing of it um and just on the whole it has solid soundtrack solid art, solid artwork phenomenal movie but just that idea of uh books and movies that that uh cultivate longing is a uh is a thing that uh that i i I think should be uh should be done more um and then for the angry part of the rant i suppose disney's trying to uh capitalize on our longing on our nostalgia by remaking all of our beloved uh childhood classics and whatnot is the most cynical selling out of that concept uh i can imagine and I cannot wait until Bad Batch is, is over, and then I can cancel my Disney Plus membership and uh, give them a giant middle finger. There you go. There Indeed. Go. Oh, do you have an opinion on Disney, Sam? You. That was where we started. Way back three years ago, we started with me talking about the religios- the religiosity of oh, Disney. Yeah. And how, I mean, I mean, the more I've realized it, the more eerie it is of how religious of an experience going to the parks is um, nauseating. Are amusement parks are amusement parks the new religious pilgrimage and Disney is like the Rome or Israel? Like it's the Holy Land. Yeah, it's the Mecca. Yeah, I think so. Except like, yeah, I I think that's the case. So you go to Six Flags if you want to see the shrine, but if you want to go to the real the real thing, you go to Disney. You have the ritual foods. You have the 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 blessed totems. You have the parade of saints at the end of the night, right? Mm -hmm. You have the you have the garb you have the you know the, yeah the religious yeah, garb the, my god yeah it's so disgusting I hate it but you know I mean to be fair I don't know I actually to... I'm not a music an amusement park like I haven't been to very many but I love I actually have a have a sweet spot in my heart for roller coasters I love them oh, um, and so I actually just like haven't been to like a Six Flags or or some like kind of park like that but I feel like that's a different experience because I feel like you're going there for like 
you know, a thrill-seeking experience. Mm. And it's like, there's no central shrine. It's like, here are all these these devices that we've created to give you these, you know, bodily sensations of, of thrill. And it's like, okay, well, I can, I can get with that. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not much different than going, I don't know, than, than any other experience. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just an experience that you do for fun. But Disney seems different in mm. that you have this, this shared, um, well, I would say like culture, but it's really just um, intellectual property. Uh, of of stories and characters and mythos all interacting and all happening at once, um, which looks far more religious than just like going and writing writing a ride mm-hmm. for you know for the for for the adrenaline rush. I mean, no, Bene, like mythos is the correct word for it. Uh, um, most of their at least good stuff was taken directly from. Uh, from myths, uh, Grimm's Book mm-hmm. of Fairy Tales being one of them, obviously made much brighter interior. Um, left hemisphere versus right hemisphere, I suppose. Um, so, I mean, like, and that's one of the kind of heartbreaking things. Maybe that is why people love Disney so much is because, yeah, like, cynical sellout culture, but at least it's a culture. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of what else do we have? That and Hollywood, those are where our cultural myths are coming from. Yep. Lord have mercy on us. Mm. Truly, we are lost, gentlemen. And, yeah. So, you should go out into the wilderness, experience something sublime, expand yourself. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, well, we would be hypocrites if we did not send our audience forth to wander into the woods. I don't know, maybe find an axe, make yourself a cabin, you know, live there until you die. Finally be free of the uh, left hemisphere hellscape that we live in. Yeah, go, look at, go look at a mountain. Yeah, go look at a mountain. I miss mountains. So, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And uh, see about the hellscape. Maybe we can get brunch. Brunch is great. <laughs> brunch, and I'm assuming that you'll be slurping down a Bloody Mary. You know it from a perfectly. Kevin, have you seen those Bloody Marys that have like a full cheeseburger shoved into them? Great. <laughs> <laughs> <That sounds great. laughs> Send me a photo. It's, it's... I'm going to find it. It's, it's some Washington uh, restaurant that does these insane Bloody Marys. Honestly, I just want like, it's a punch bowl, but it sort of like has like a wide brim and then it's only half full and it's just surrounded with like hot dogs and hamburgers. And you, there's like a giant straw that goes down to, to the Bloody Mary in the middle. Gosh, here, here, I got some good ones here. Yeah. I mean, if you just look up insane Bloody Marys, you can, this one has a whole pizza shoved into it. Like, all right. Look yeah. This. Insane. Bloody yeah. Mary. Yes. Let's Google insane Bloody Marys. Listen, yeah, like how, like how can you argue that this is not one of the best drinks? Oh, it's so beautiful. Oh my God, look at that. that I can't. Like peasant shoved into this one. What's the matter with you, you sociopath? There's one with a, with a fried chicken on it. What the, what the actual prick? <laughs> Here's the pizza one. That's just... Oh, this yeah. is a good one. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> one, uh, has a crab, deep fried crab. <laughs> here's here's this is the uh, the beast mode Bloody Mary that features the full bag of of uh, Skittles. Nice. Wait, what? Yeah, I've heard yeah. of this. Yeah, good. <laughs> what? What the frick? And, and see, you keep you keep trying to convince me, but you keep helping my case. Listen, you can dip everything in the Bloody Mary. It's amazing. Skittles, Skittles I at least understand fried chicken. I can wrap my head around that. You could wrap your head around a full chicken shoved into a drink. <laughs> Not that. At least the flavors are working together. Freaking Skittles. Well, Maybe no, it's in the bag. They're, they're in the bag. This oh, one has, yeah, uh, I see. Oh, so do you want to drink the bag now? This this, this one has shots hanging off the side of it. <laughs> okay, that's actually <laughs> kind of funny. 